Time is going to go. It's going to go real fast. There's nothing you can do about that. And you, it doesn't feel real fast at 3 a.m. when you're it, changing no, no. diapers. It, here's, here's the deal. I know you know this. Everybody does, but you'll, you'll find out even more so. Any individual day can go on forever, but the years, man, the years, they go so fast. It is absolutely unbelievable how fast they and, and the older you get, the faster they go. I'm Tim Bickett, a grain and cattle risk management advisor from Worthington, Minnesota, and you are listening to the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today, we interview Phil Luce of the White Commercial Corporation, which is a grain trading company. And if you're a farmer, you might be thinking, I already know everything I need to know about this. And if you're not in farming, you might be saying, what do I care about grain trading? But trust me, when you hear Phil with his calm demeanor and patient way of explaining things, you'll realize this guy has a view on the world that few other people have. And he has the capacity to explain things about where money actually enters the world of farming in ways that are intriguing and will help you understand the world in a deeper level. We're going to get to that interview in just a moment, but we want to talk about something that's changed with legacy interviews. We now have the capacity to turn your concierge interview into a full transcript in a leather-bound book. So for many, many months, we've been asked by our clients, can you get me a transcript? How can we do this? But we didn't want to just enter this world. We wanted to do it right. And so we've contracted with one of the few remaining leather-binding book companies in the country, and we are now in the process of creating transcripts that can be held in book form, put on your bookshelf as something you will be proud to have, in addition to the video that you'll have of your interview. So if you're interested in having me sit down with your loved one to record a legacy interview, then go to legacyinterviews.com to find out more. All right, without further ado, let's head to the interview with my man, Phil Luce. Phil Luce, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Fun to be here. So you are in town for a grain operators conference? Yeah, the National Grain Feed Association Country Elevator Conference, which happens once a year. The National Grain Feed Association is uh, an organization that it's all over the country, but it's in Washington, D.C. to represent national, represent grain and feed dealers. It's your lobbyists. Yeah, somewhat. It's at least among the lobbyists that we have. I think that that's like the craziest thing about D.C. is you go there and you find out like, wait, the, like even teeter-totter manufacturers that's have right. their own lobby group. Yeah. Yep, everybody has a lobbyist. And the, the National Grain, NGFA is what we call them. Uh, they, this particular one was Country Elevator Conference, which is the business I'm in, but they represent agriculture. Uh, in a pretty wide range of things. They have grain handling. You know, I'm in grain trading, but they, they represent grain handling and and uh, facilities and export export companies and anything that has to do with grain and feed. We're in a narrow corner of that. But So, oh, so they're, so you've brought in other groups so that way you can have more like kind of elbow, elbows a little heavier at the table then? I don't know what that means. Well, like uh, if it was just the grain elevators, there's not that many of you. So like the the lobbying power you could bring together. Yeah, I think so. And the NGFA also uh, also has codified trade rules. They don't make they're not a legislative body, but they've codified grain trading rules about about um, contract disputes and a whole bunch of other things that represents common practice. And they are also an arbitration body. So if you get into a if you get into a delivery, I sell you grain and you don't pick it up or I don't deliver it, now we've got a problem. We can go to the courts and the courts will take a while to figure it out or we can go to NGFA arbitration and it's people who understand our business and can get right down to it and make a decision 
And the if if you disagree with the arbitration decision, we can go to court, but most of the time the court's going to uphold that. So it, it's really helpful for those kind of dispute resolution things, representation. And this event really is just to get a bunch of people together, uh, grain elevators and, and folks who service them, people like us and people who build bins and conveyors and handling equipment and do trucking. And it, it, it's a typical trade show. People get together and, and try to sell their products to yeah there's people sitting at booths and other people trying not to make eye contact and (laughs) yeah right yep i'm not good in a booth situation so uh for people that don't understand anything at all about you know the way that grain moves from it's on the farm to it's all around the world what is where is the grain elevator fit into this whole scheme yeah farmers grow grain obviously and at the other, the far end of that spectrum, you have someone consuming the grain. And then in between there, you've got people who transport it and people who turn it into something else. So if I hand you a bucket of raw corn, there's not much you can do with it. But once that's been crushed and ground up and turned into animal food, then you can eat the animal or turn it into cornmeal. You can do something with it or turn it into starch or corn syrup. So you've got the producers over here. You've got the consumers way over here, processors here. And the grain elevator is, is in between the producer and the processor. The reason that's true is because harvest takes place over, you know, somewhere between four and eight weeks, let's say. It's, it's probably a little bit, it can vary widely depending on weather, but harvest happens quickly. It's in just one little piece of the year. All of the grain that's grown gets brought to, gets harvested out of the field in a short window, but it gets used 365 days a year. So it's necessary to have some party. The processor doesn't want to store a bunch of grain and, and hold on to that whole crop. They want to have a steady supply and just process it and turn it into their product. So the grain elevator collects the grain from the farmer, keeps it in good condition and redistributes it to those end users on a steady basis. When the, when the grain goes into those bins, who owns it? It depends. Uh, farmers can rent storage space in a bin, in which case they retain title, but the elevator is collecting some fees to store it. Uh, ideally, the elevator wants to own those bushels. They want to pay the farmer a good price, have control of the bushels so that rather than just renting out space, they're able to merchandise, which is just the word for find the users of it and negotiate a price and get it shipped out and have some, have a, you can get a greater return merchandising than you can renting your space out. Why? Um, partially because of competition. You know, there's, you've got a grain bin and I've got a grain bin and I say, okay, I need a nickel a bushel a month. And you say, I'll do it for four. And then I say, okay, fine. I'll do it for three. And then pretty soon we're both doing it for nothing. And so that, that, that's one reason. The other reason is because of the microeconomic supply and demand, all of that grain coming to market at one time means that's typically the low point of basis, which is how the industry values grain rather than price. All of the supply comes to market. The basis is low. As, as the supply finds a home and, and is in a bin with the door shut and it's not moving anymore, the processors have to start paying up to get it out of that storage space. So you get this dip in the value of commodities at harvest time, and then you get a recovery afterwards. So the elevator's job is to pay the farmer the best price they can, but own that low point of basis. And then as the, as the users need it, they, they can take advantage of that recovery in the basis value. And then at these elevators, you know, the one in my hometown, small town, central Illinois is right off an elevator or, they, or uh, right off of train tracks, right? Like that's, so they truck it in and then it's going out on rail. Is Are all elevators on rail? No, it, it depends. Probably depends on a lot of factors, but to keep it as simple as possible, there are markets that produce more grain than is used locally. And so they need to get it out of, they need to get it out of town. 
and the rail is a very efficient way to do that. There are markets that consume more than they produce and they bring it in on rail because of that. But there are other markets that the usage and the production and consumption is pretty well balanced. And a lot of that stuff just comes in on a truck and also goes out on a truck. It's not going very far. Yeah, I was at, so I was at your conference last year, the white commercial one, and I got to learn a whole bunch about grain elevators. And it was surprising to me because I'd never really thought about it, that there are places that like, there's just not much corn grown, but like that also means the infrastructure might not be there to move it around. And so like, you're not going to get as good of a price. Like the fact that there are other farmers around could actually improve the price of your grain, depending on the overall circumstances. Yeah. The, the, uh, I always talk about again, oversimplification, which is kind of my thing, but uh, the corn to cow ratio, if you have a lot of cows and not very much corn, corn's more valuable, but it's harder to get. And so, you know, it's kind of a trade-off. The, the, the person growing corn there is going to have probably cost him more to grow it or is going to produce less of it because the ground's not suitable. So you're getting a higher price per bushel of corn, let's say, but you're not growing as much corn or it costs you a lot because you've got to water it or something. It, it all, it, in some big sense, the price of a, a commodity, corn, soybeans, or wheat is nets out to the same wherever you are, kind of. It's not really quite that simple, but it's close. The, the places that need a lot of corn, price is higher, cost more to get it done or you produce less. The places that the price is lower, you produce a whole, many, whole bunch more bushels, so you're selling a lower price, but selling more of it. You know, in, in, a, in the broadest of senses, it's has yeah, the same yeah, value. Anymore, so. Yeah. so what we're trading really is the inefficiencies. It, it could be locally, it could be from your elevator in your hometown to the ethanol plant right across town, or it could be on a rail car to Georgia. Either way, there are these momentary inefficiencies where it's not worth the same everywhere. And so I can buy it in Illinois and I can pay the cost of shipping it on a rail car to Georgia and they need it bad enough in Georgia right then that the value I can sell overcomes that tremendous cost of freight of getting it there. And are things that exciting? Like, is this a, is this a business where you're like, Oh, I found it. I found a chance. Yes. <laughs> it depends somewhat too on where you are. A lot of it depends on geography. There are places where the, the production and consumption is is close enough to par that things don't move quite as much but even in those places then we're rather than having this happen on a day we're, we're backing off the time frame and saying the time frame and saying you're a farmer today i can p- pay you a great price for corn you're going to deliver to me in october of 2023 and i'm going to establish a value of ownership for myself and if i buy it from you in october Maybe the movement isn't very much, but if I can buy it from you today at a price you really like, I can establish a low enough ownership value that I'm, I'm creating that inefficiency now for the future. So one way or another, it's either happening in real time or we're just putting way more time between the purchase and sale and creating the opportunity that way. Futures is one of those things that's like the, I understand it on an intellectual level, but like, it's such a scary thing because I like, I think, you know, my life is particularly right now I have a five month old at home. Right. So life is really on minute by minute scale. But like, when you think about it, like the, so much about the world can change between now and October, 2023. Like, how do you, is that, is, are, is everybody that's in the futures market, like riding the, riding the electric, you know, the lightning cause it's so exciting or like. In a sense, I think, in our business, especially, we take a lot of the sexiness out of futures because we're trading physical grain. That's what we, we, we want to trade this basis value and we don't need to get way in the weeds on that, but. Well, we talked about it on our we talked about it, together, right. yeah. So we, we, we've done that. We're trading basis and we need futures to create basis. That, so that's where we're living. The problem for our customers, white commercial customers comes up when, to your point, some, well, we saw it this, this uh, spring or this winter with the Ukraine invasion 
people had wheat hedged in a normal course of business. I paid the farmer, I sold futures, I've got this basis locked in, and all of a sudden wheat goes up $4. The wheat futures price goes up $4. And the challenge for the person that sold the futures, whether you're a speculator or a hedger, our guys are hedgers and we're not, we're not trying to predict these movements, but this movement happened. And the way futures works is you've got to pony up every day for what you would have lost if you sold futures. So if I sell wheat futures at $5 and in two months later, they're $9. If I bought those futures back on that day, I would have a $4 loss and I have to put that $4 into my futures account. It's segregated funds still in my name, but I have to show that I can do it. And so that created a lot of stress because this is a credit line issue. You know, this is wheat that's going to be harvested and I can't sell it and get my money back till it's harvested in June or July. I've got to pony up $4 a bushel for this wheat, which is you know, at least $3.50 more than I expected. So it comes into, it turns into a, a cash flow issue. I've got a, this money, I'm borrowing it from the bank. It's money I would normally be using for operations or something else. I have to have it just sitting in this futures account as a, just to show that I could absorb this loss if I had to. So that kind of thing creates a lot of. Man, it didn't even panics. really dawn on me. When I looked at the, the Ukraine situation, for example, and prices going up, you think like, ah, everybody's making bank here in, in the U.S. But no, there are people that are getting that are that are getting really stretched really out. Stre- yeah, a, a few a few things can happen. Number one, high prices are generally good for the industry. They're generally very good for farmers. They're pretty good for the rest of the industry, but they're very stressful for everyone. So the, the, the things that can happen is you, if you're the farmer that sold wheat to me, you sold me wheat for five dollars a bushel, which is a pretty good price for wheat. If you didn't, if you hadn't done that, all of a sudden on March 1st, you could have sold it for $9 a bushel. I'm just making these numbers up, but it's a, all of a sudden your wheat's worth almost double what you sold it for, but you can't participate in that because you already sold it. So that's, you may still be making money, but it's very stressful to say, okay, I could have sold this for twice as much as I did. In the meantime, there's a perception in some cases that the grain elevator has made $4 a bushel, but they haven't because they sold futures on the day that you sold the wheat. So the grain elevator is ponying up $4 and that's disrupting their ability to operate their business because they've got to keep going back to the bank, expanding credit lines, not doing other things because this money's tied up. So that's, it's very stressful. In the long run, high prices are good, but they create a lot of stress. Who puts up the the money? Like, so banks, like you go and you have like a running, rolling credit line with the bank. And, and so you probably have to have a pretty good relationship with the lending institution if you could get that far are stretched out. Yeah, this, yes, is the short answer. You have to have a very good relationship with a bank who understands your business and also uh, is in constant communication with you to make sure that your position is hedged up, that the discipline is being, uh, that you're not out there speculating on futures, that every every position you have is tied to some cash contract or cash bushel somewhere. In 2008, we had a huge market run-up. Normally, a market run-up happens because we have a short crop or the fear of a short crop. The invasion of Ukraine was the fear of, okay, Ukraine provides a whole bunch of wheat to the world. Maybe they're not going to grow any wheat. Who, who knows? We just don't know. But let's just say if we take all Ukrainian wheat off the table, we got a big shortage. So let's run the price up. And it was just a fear-based thing. Or legitimately, you have a drought or some other thing and don't produce wheat. So that, that drives the price up. Um, had a lot I was going to say about that. Give me one second. Well, we're both on our, at least I'm on my first cup of coffee. I think this is the first podcast I've ever done where I'm drinking my first cup of coffee. And I was actually thinking before we started, like, it, this is a little like taking amphetamines for me or something. Cause like caffeine <laughs> really like, like, I know I got it. The bank, the, uh, in 2008, we had a run up that was not tied to a crop shortage or a fear of a crop shortage. The futures just took off. I, I think the, 
the simple explanation was it was there's a demand not for grain, but for futures. So a lot of money came from Wall Street and bought futures. There was all these things going on that created a run up in the futures market that wasn't tied to a shortage of the crop. And so this is a real problem because what that means is if wheat's worth $5 a bushel and the futures go to nine, if we're in a shortage, the cash price will follow that future. You know, there'll be some correlation. Well, you had the futures price run away and the cash price stayed the same. So now you're looking at not only these margin calls ponying up this money, but you're not going to make any money. You're going to lose money on the crop that you bought. Long story short, that year, White Commercial hired a banker to come and work for us. Taught him, We taught him the grain business. He was a commercial lender. And his job for us is liaison between our customers and their lenders to help our customers understand what banks want and need to be comfortable to help banks understand what our customers are doing and why all this works. And, um, and then in 2012, we had another big rally that was related to a drought. The prices went up. It got stressful again. But what happened is between 2008, 2012, the banks really started to demand more reporting from grain businesses. And in the before that, a lot of these lending relationships were based on the value of farmland, property, just, just kind of a collateralized loan. And now it's it's very much more... There's a borrowing base that they fill out. Uh, they have to just show once a month is typical. We have to, here are all our positions. Here's what would happen if we liquidated everything today. There's just a lot more communication between the banks and the elevators. So we had this big run up this spring with the Ukraine situation and everything else that all the typical uncertainty of the market in the springtime when planting's happening. And we had some pretty, pretty dramatic things happen with a minimum of banking problems. Banks understand they're in constant communication. They have a steady flow of information back and forth. That's not to say that you still don't run afoul of covenants. You know, you have, you have loan limits and those things have to be expanded and you have to do a lot of negotiation and make that work. But it's not a surprise anymore. 2008, 2012, a lot of banks were just surprised. You know, we have a $10 million line of credit and now you need $30 million. How can we do that? You know, and, and if you don't understand what's happening, you can't do it. And the worst case scenario is, they say we can't fund this anymore, and you, you, we own the business now. Oh, really? That can happen? Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of times what happens is they just say we're not going to fund your futures account anymore. You have to liquidate your futures positions. Good luck to you, and then you know you scramble around. And if if you're if you have enough of a balance sheet, you can absorb that loss and carry on. If not, you end up selling the business or going to receivership. And the banks that that you're working with are these community level banks? Are these savings and loans or co-ops, or are they the big? Rabo banks and farm credit. Yeah, all of the above. It, what what has a big a big change that happened from these rallies I'm talking about several years ago is our customers on the whole love to do business with the local bank. They're very interested in local community things. They've had this relationship with a banker for years and years and years. So two things happened. First is there was a shift in some cases to larger co-bank and, and Rabo Bank and Wells Fargo and Chase and all of that. Uh, but also these community banks just started participating with the bigger banks in, in a big way. And so they, those relationships are pre-set up so that when, when the community bank runs out of credit to, to offer, they can participate and get some more credit from a larger institution. And that's, it was painful because you just had to do a lot more reporting. Our, our customers had to do way more reporting than they were used to. Uh, and it turned out to be a really good thing. It was, it was a difficult change because it's, a little bit of a headache, you know, and it's just extra work you have to do all the time. And sometimes you have to reveal things that you'd rather not, you know, that, that's part of the communication. But on the whole, we really saw it this spring, all of that work that the banks and, and the grain business did to communicate better and understand each other and 
be prepared. And also it, it puts some discipline in place because you have, you're accountable now every month you have to show what's going on. And so maybe that you may be the first person I've ever heard be like, and that was when the bureaucracy really helped us out. <laughs> that's not, that's not the way I'd like to say it. <laughs> it it's true. It's, I suppose in some way it's bureaucracy, but what it really is, is communication. That's really, that's really what all of this, the borrowing base, all this monthly reporting, it's not a huge amount of reporting and it goes to someone who needs to see it. You know, it's not a, it's not a formality. It's, it's truly saying here's the situation. And 30 days later, here it is again. Everybody knows what's happening. So it's very difficult now to have a surprise, very difficult for something just to blow up and no one was ready for it. So, yeah. And if there's one thing I know about banking, like, the last thing you want to do is surprise your banker. Like it's, it's like the, if your banker is ever like, I didn't know this, or he hears something from another banker and then has to come ask you about it. That's when they come in being like, Hey, we're going to really look at our exact agreement and we're going to start pointing at specific lines in there. Whereas if you've kept them in the loop and then that guy can go to his boss and be like, this is what's going on. That's exactly right. Bankers hate surprises. That's exactly that. And our Jeff Reardon, who's the banker that we hired, who's really become a tremendous resource to the industry. That's his whole, that's his mantra. Bankers hate surprises. And so one of the things he does that's really helped a lot is do what ifs ahead of time. So here's the plan. And it's really simple. We say, here's the, here's how the grain will flow into and out of our facility. And so if it's coming all in, in the fall, then we're going to get rid of it gradually throughout the year. We can, we can do some projections on what's it, what's it going to cost. If we've got a million bushels of corn in here and corn's $5, then we have, it's going to cost $5 million, you know, in October to buy all this corn. And then as we sell it off, we're going to get that money back. But then you can run what ifs. What if we buy all this corn at $5 and the market goes to 10? Well, then we're going to have to pony up $5. What does that look like? What does that look like to the credit line? And you can put all this in front of the lender and say, here's the worst case scenario we can think of. Here's the best case scenario we can think of. Here's kind of in the middle and just get all those surprises out of the way because it, I think it really is helpful. I'm not sure why it doesn't materially help to have said, here's what could happen. And then it happens. If it, if you need twice as much money, you need twice as much money. But the fact that we talked about it before it happened makes you more comfortable. Oh, I mean, that's human nature, right? Like there's so much you learn about human nature, at least for I am as, as a new dad, right? Like where you're like, if I tell my daughter that we might get somewhere and it might not work out, like, you know, he might not be there. You know, we might go knock on the door and, and Mrs. Brangle might not answer right? Like that's way, way better. And then you, you know, you, you cycle that out in the rest of your life and you think like, oh, actually that doesn't change just because there's two. That's actually who everybody is. Yeah, that's exactly right. Bankers hate surprises. Everything we can do to, to communicate to them what could happen, good and bad is is really helped tremendously. So, you know, you're living in a world where the value of the dollar is not purchasing as much as what it did the month before, certainly the year before. How does this show up in the world of grain trading? Um, well, practically speaking, everything costs more. Labor costs more. Insurance costs more. Repairs cost more. Parts are harder to get, which is kind of a subset of all that. So practically speaking, it's just more expensive to run a business for our customers, just like it is for everyone else. Um, the dollar, even though it doesn't purchase as much, is strong. And so that puts us on a little bit of tough footing export wise, a strong dollar makes our grain more expensive to other countries, which puts us at a disadvantage to South America or somebody else that's exporting. Explain that. That's something that is intuitive to people that know it, but, but like the, yeah. a, a strong dollar uh, means if you wanted to buy dollars, you have to pony up way more pesos or way more euros in order to get dollars. So that, like that's right. a dollar, a, 
a one U.S. dollar might cost a dollar twenty-five of the euro. We'll just say for example. Right. So if the if if corn is four dollars a bushel, I'm I'm throwing these prices around to make math easy for me. If if corn is four dollars a bushel and the exchange rate's a dollar twenty-five, it's going to cost me five dollars a bushel, twenty-five percent more. Uh, versus if I can also look at South America, Brazil or Argentina, and buy corn or soybeans from them, and their their currency is less strong compared to mine, then it's cheaper. You know, it might only cost me four dollars fifty cents equivalent to buy it from there. So a strong dollar relative to other economies makes our products more expensive. And um, it's it is easy to get confused about how that works. And then as inflation occurs, you can be saying like, oh, okay, well, locally, like where it's more expensive to buy these things. And yet the other guys that are living somewhere else, their things are getting a lot more expensive because their inflation is happening faster. And so the, the, the ocean stays level, but it, every, everybody just rises with it. Yeah. So the inflation, um, what our customers are talking about right now is the price of grain is higher, which just means the amount of money you have to borrow to buy it is more. Interest rates are higher. So the amount of interest I'm paying on the money I borrowed is higher. Uh, at the same time, all my costs have gone up. So the margin I need to generate has, has gone up just to stay even. I, I need to make whatever, 15 cents more a bushel, let's say, just to get back to where I was. All I'm doing is covering extra costs with this extra margin. So the challenge for our customers in this environment is they need to make more gross margin. Just to just to stay level, and I, I think every business is, is is in that situation more or less. The good news for us is, grain prices are higher, which means farmers are more willing to sell. Right? So if I've got if the basis again is that difference between the f- futures price and the cash price. If the futures are three dollars a bushel and my basis is twenty under, that's two dollars and eighty cents to you. Well, we're going to have a lot of conversation about that because two dollars and eighty cents is not a very high price for a bushel of corn. If the futures are seven dollars. And I'm 50 under, I'm taking 30 cent more differential in my bid, but I'm paying you $6.50 a bushel. So it's a little easier to build in extra margin when the price is high. So that's a that's helpful. And I think also the industry has just realized businesses are competitive with each other. In the grain business, there's a, a big fear that if I don't, I need to take every bushel I possibly can. Like I, I want, I don't want to see a corn truck go past my driveway to go to Vance Crow Elevator. I want them all to come to Phil Elevator. And so we get into this bidding, you know, we're, we're pushing up our bid all the time, paying more and more for stuff. And that puts you in a bind because if you if you overpay right at the beginning of the cycle, it's really hard to trade your way out of that. If I just pay too much, there's very little I can do to fix that later. And I think the industry over the last several years has realized we, we can't, this is not a success strategy. We have to stop beating each other up on prices. We have to pay as fair as we can, but let's, let's quit competing each other into the place where we're all going to lose. So this year we kind of had the haves and the have nots on production. The Western half of the United States was pretty poor. The Eastern half was pretty good. Uh, But for the first time in a long time, we saw grain businesses not beating each other's brains out on trying to pay up for grain. Let's keep, let's pay a fair price, but let's don't hamper our ability to make money. And that's because they were trying to cooperate or? No, it's just, I think, self-interest. It was just, we, we realized finally, we're going to have to, it's going to, we're going to have to be okay. You can't handle every bushel. You know, if you're willing to pay way more than I am, I'm going to have to say, as much as I don't like to see that truck full of corn going by to your place, I'm going to have to let some of those go. Because if I run out there and stop that guy and say, what do I need to pay you to turn in here? 
I'm going to put myself in a position I can't make any money. So everyone came to that realization together is how it seemed to me. And and if nobody fires the first shot, then you don't, then you don't get into that. That's interesting. No, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, a planned strategy. It wasn't, everybody didn't get together. You know, it wasn't collusion. It was just business. They just, they just realized that's right. Nobody fires the first shot. Nobody needs to go out there and be the hero and post this high price. Let's post a fair price. This is a survival issue. It never dawned on me until you were describing earlier about what happens if futures contracts go way up that you have to go to the bank and ask for money as a grain handler. But then if interest rates are going up, that like that compounds really quickly. Really quickly, yeah. Yeah, money's been almost free. Not really, but it feels like it relatively for several years. Well, not free. But let's just say if you had good credit, you're paying 3% for money. And now if you have good credit, you're paying 6% for money. I mean, I, we were paying less on interest than what the inflation rate was, right? So if, if inflation, all this, if interest starts catching up with the price of inflation, now all of a sudden there's realities that people weren't facing before. You could take out so much more money. You could do things you you wouldn't be able to do in an environment where you were paying for some value. It was just really, really cheap to borrow money. Yeah, well, what came up at the conference yesterday, just of things that are on grain dealers' minds, for January of 2023 is there's this idea of deferred money. Farmers, farmers will come in and sell in the fall, but don't take the money till the new tax year. So there's, you, you really don't spend very much money in the fall, even though you own the grain, but you've got, well, three or four weeks from now, January 3rd is kind of the date when, when grain dealers write checks, you're going to pay, you're going to write checks for a much higher price than you have the last few years, just because the price is up. And right away, you're going to be paying twice as much, per month in interest costs as you oh, have because that money's coming out of your deposit account. And so now you've got to borrow. Yep. Yep. So, oh, so that's there, interesting. And not only is it more dollars than it's been in a long time, but the cost of those dollars over time is way up. So it's, it's a pretty significant change and the potential to be stressful. What's, what's happening is people are going to, number one, they paid less in basis terms this fall. That's the first thing they did to mitigate this. The second thing is they're already out there getting the stuff sold. You know, they're not, it's not sit around and wait for things to get better. I'm going to go find a value somewhere and get it sold because the market's saying you can't afford to sit on this stuff like you normally do. So it's, uh, you know, it's not the first time we had, when I got in the business, I think money was, you know, six to 8%. Now prices were much lower. This was the mid nineties, but it, even back in the seventies, we had 18% interest, 20% interest or the eighties, I guess the early eighties. Uh, we've been here before. It's just been a while. We've gotten used to having very, very, very cheap money. You may have to put, you may have to borrow a lot of dollars, but you're not paying very much to get them paid back. Well, now we're in a new environment. My intuitive sense is the people that have been in business for a while think like, hey, we're heading into a zone we haven't been in in a while, but we've, we've been here before. And people like me that haven't been, but look at the world from a different vantage point say, no, I don't think this is like last time. I think this is, a lot worse than last time. Like, where? how do you, I mean, clearly you won't know the answer until it plays out, but like, you think this is transitory, maybe painful, but not, not, not anything unprecedented? I, it's a little bit of both. Every, every one of these changes is its own thing. You can't say this, this high interest rate. Sure, of the 80s just like, wasn't like the 70s. No, with no, the 60s. They're, they're all their own thing. Uh, but I do think over the span of years, and especially if you if you talk to someone who's been in my particular industry since the 70s, I remember talking to a guy, this is probably in 2012, so 10 years, 10 or 13 years, 10 or 12 years ago now, 
and at the time we were in a very stressful environment. Prices were up. It was just a lot of things were going on that were stressful margin, everything we've talked about. And this was the first one of those for me at that time. Well, I talked to this guy who was in the grain business in the seventies with the Russian embargo and all that stuff. And he said, yeah, you know, we did this in the seventies price of grain doubled. We thought the world was coming to an end. It was really stressful. And then, and then and, you know, then we got through it and now we're, we're just doing that kind of again. It's different this time, but it's, we've done this before. So that was formative for me to hear that man say, not every time is the same, but we, this is not a brand new thing that's happened. But interestingly enough, I, I think we do because of the baby boomer generation starting to age out, retire, sell business, so on. We do have a lot of people in our industry who have only been around for six or seven years, let's say, and they're good traders and they, but this is absolutely brand new. You know, if you're, if you're 30 years old and you're in this business, this is for sure the first time you're seeing this and you have no frame of reference. You can talk to somebody, you know, I qualify as an old guy. Now you can talk to me and I can say, yeah, we've been, you know, we've, we have these things, they come and go, they're stressful while they're happening. Uh, in the big picture, everything's transitory. That's yeah, what, that's, that's true. what I that's think. Fair. <laughs> but, but if you're 30 years old and you've been in the grain business for six years, this is absolutely big and stressful. And, and it's the, if you've been in the business for 40 years, it's also stressful now, but I believe that frame of reference lets you say it's, this is new, but it's not, it's not brand new in a sense. We've, we've been through other stressful things before and you know, it, it's important to be disciplined. It's important to understand the stresses that you're under. So again, like I said, if, if everything costs more then I have to make more money, which is a gross oversimplification, but it's also true. So what do I have to do? You can cut costs, kind of. You can't really cut. Not, you don't make money in a business by cutting costs. You make money in business by making more money. And so... the Yeah, and particularly the commodity world is just such an interesting one, right? Like, because as anybody that offers, like, a service, they're always like, whatever you do, don't let your service become a commodity because then the commodity will get beaten down in price. So you yes. don't want to be in a place where you cannot differentiate between your stuff, but you do live in that world where, where there is not differentiation between corn or you know, one truck or another. That's, that is the ultimate challenge of the grain business and always has been is the commodity is, is not differentiate. You can't differentiate between a corn and another, you know, this truckload of corn, that truckload, it's all corn. You know, it's just like when you, when a farmer comes and dumps a load of corn at the grain bin, he can't go get that load of corn out again. He just gets other corn if he wants to come and get it. No, there is grading. So like we, yeah. we, if we're talking to a part of the audience that listens, no connection with farming. So there is like, hey, you get the better graded corn. You, hey, you brought in corn that was dried down too much or oh, we had to spend a bunch of money or you had mold or something in here. Yeah, there are discounts for quality. There aren't, there aren't typically, there are premiums in certain cases for quality, but, but typically there are discounts for poor quality. So everything's trying to get to what they call number two yellow corn or number two yellow soybeans, which is a certain test weight per bushel. How many pounds does it take to make a bushel? And as you said, does it have bugs in it? Is it, are the kernels broken? All that kind of stuff. But in general, corn's a commodity and all, all those discounts do is just adjust everything to, you know, what one of the things the elevator can do to make money is you discount for this poor quality stuff. And if you can blend it into good quality stuff, it's all good quality at the end. So that, that's part of what happens. But in general, corn is corn, soybeans are soybeans, wheat is wheat. You don't, you don't differentiate that way unless you're in some kind of a premium, you know, tortilla chip business or something. But you, you nailed it. They are, grain elevators are a service business. They exist because, like I said, farmers grow it all and need to go somewhere with it at harvest time. At har it's like, it's got to go at harvest time. It's got to get out of the field and go somewhere. These guys want 12 truckloads a day, 365 days a year. They don't want all of the crop. So 
this service entity is providing service to these people and these people. I'm, I'm providing the, the steady supply and quality to these guys. I'm supplying a place to come and get either storage space or sell your grain, one or the other. And you have to, you have to be better at service. That that's the, that's really the key again, oversimplification, but the world, I think everyone shouldn't just embrace radical simplicity. What has to happen? What has to happen is I need to make more money. How do I make more money? There are a few things I can do, but one of the things I need to do is buy cheaper basis than I'm buying right now. Well, I have to be worth that somehow. I can't, if you're, if you're bidding X for corn and I bid 30 cents less than you and I'm right next door, I better have some reason I'm worth 30 cents less. And things that would be, when you're talking about service for an elevator, you're saying like, so if you don't, if you're not real familiar with how farming works, if you're a farmer, you are running that combine and you've got semis that come up and the, the combine dumps into that semi and then that semi has got to go drop it off at an elevator. But if he goes and gets in a line of 300 other trucks, he's just wasting time. And that farmer doesn't have that many semis or the more money he's put into semis. So if you can provide him a way to drop that corn off quickly would be one example of service. But what other, what other things could yeah. you do? Speed and space are the baseline. That's right. If I can get you in and out, that's worth something. If you have to wait, then I can bid less than the other guy if you don't have to wait with me. That, that's obvious. Uh, a few other things are, how fast do you pay? You know, there are some big companies that pay every two weeks or something. So do, can I get you a check the next day? Can I get you one check per load? Or however you want it, if you want to add everything up and get paid at the end. There, there are a bunch of things. A lot of these farm companies are uh, owned by, you know, we got to split this ticket 16 ways because my aunt owns some of this farm and we got an LLC with my brother and, so I'm selling you a thousand bushels of corn, but I need 16 checks. Well, some people are, are very happy to do that because that's the jet word service business. That's what we need to do. Some people are not happy and they make it, make it hard or they make mistakes. They don't get it right. So it's really just, it's as simple as this. What, what do you need? If you're a farmer delivering me grain, what do you need? Do you need a ticket split a bunch of ways? Do you need to, you need me to be open late? Do you need me to be open early? Do you need me to send my truck to the field to pick up from your combine? Whatever it is, it's a, it can be a bunch of different things. But ultimately, if if you don't provide service, you don't get to make money. That's that's it. We're a service business. And that's what's so difficult. If you're running a business, as a person that runs a service business, right, you want to offer this person anything you want. But you also realize if I offer you too much, then all of a sudden the cost to provide this thing go like exceeds whatever it is that I'm gaining off of this thing. And so it's a tenuous balance. That's right. Absolutely right. That's absolutely right. There are things that you can't afford to do and still make money, but there are a bunch of things you can do. It's just a, one thing that's, that's true. And this is not a moral problem, but the, the larger a company gets, the less they're able to provide the service that customers want, especially in a business like ours, where it's very personal, very relationship driven. It's, they're not, they're not evil. They're just too big. So one of the things we, we specialize in dealing with small and mid-sized grain companies, a lot of family businesses and so on. And the person that's, that's at the window dumping your load of grain into the dump pit is also the person who owns the business, you know, and they can, they know who you are or they, or if you're a truck driver, they, they see the name on the truck and they know what farm this belongs to. They, they knew your dad, they know how many different tickets you need. You know, there's, there's a, there's an element that being small, it creates its own problems. You don't have as big a pocketbook and everything, but uh, being small lets you really hone in on personal service. And that's, in my observation, 
being able to provide exactly what people need, speed, space, and all these other intangible things is how you earn the right to, to bid a price that lets you make money. So I was uh, on my drive in, I, I was talking to my buddy Keaton Kruger, who uh, listens to your podcast, which we should talk about your podcast. He was like, you know, one of the things that was just on Phil's latest episode was the guy was essentially making the case that even if you're a big farmer, like the intuitive sense of these large corporations is that big farmers want to work with the big businesses. And he's like, no, 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 no. Even if you're a big farmer, you realize if you go work with somebody that's small enough to know your name and care about your business, then you're going to get way better service. And like that to me makes total sense, right? Like bureaucracies don't really, I mean, you become bureaucracies become commodity services as well. Right. Yeah, absolutely. There's people are individuals. And so one size doesn't fit all, but that's, there's, there's a, there is a, uh, an idea in the grain business that if the farmer's huge and I'm small, he doesn't want to deal with me. But you know, like Rob Cogdell said on my podcast, it's just not true. If, if you could find a way to provide obvious value to those people, they do want to deal with you because they don't want to be treated like a commodity somewhere else. Or in, in his case, he said, everyone's trying to get in their pocket. So, you know, you're a big successful farmer. You've obviously got a lot of money. Let's figure out ways to extract that money from you. And as somebody that has worked in large corporations, right? The thing a large corporation can do when they see a large farmer is to say, all right, let's put like 15 people on this account to figure out how can we extract as much money as possible yeah. from this thing so that they can get their ROI. Not, there's nothing wrong with no, that. No, that's right. It's just saying like- Different approach. Different approach. So let's talk about your podcast, man. Okay. You, you started that earlier this year. You sent me the pilot episode. Yeah. It's something I've thought about for a long time. Uh, like I said to you earlier, I'm one of the, one of the things that prevented me for a while is I'm a perfectionist and I don't want to put it out if it's not really high quality, but I, I decided that, that was not a productive way to proceed. So I'm good enough. <laughs> I'm going for good enough quality. But what's happened, I've just met so many incredible people in this in this line of work. And they're in small towns, they're running small businesses. And, you know, from the outside looking in, it's it's easy to say that's a country person. They're whatever. You know, they're uneducated. I, I don't know if that's prevalent or not, but it's, it's easy to, here's a person that's, that's running this dusty business in this little town and, and that's what they do. Well, that's just not the case. You know, these people are highly educated and influential. And even if they're not highly educated, they're very good at what they do. They have these incredible backstories. And so uh, I've spent 27 years hearing these stories and getting to know these people. And it just seemed like a good idea for, for other people to have the chance to hear these stories. And there's, you know, there's all kinds of them in, in the first, I've done four episodes. And so we've had an Olympic archer or Olympic hopeful. We've had a PhD. We've had a lady who became, I think, uh, fair to say the queen of grain trading of Northeastern Iowa, who's just the, the most humble person that you'd ever meet and has no aspirations to be a big shot, but just, just got good at what she did. Give does. her name. Yeah. What's her name? Yeah, Marilyn Sullivan. Marilyn Sullivan's her name. She, she runs a grain business with six siblings. She's one of the she and five siblings run this grain business that their dad started in 1974. And from 1974 to about 2006, never showed a profit. They made, they made payroll and everything, but the business never showed a profit. And we met her and her family. We were able to teach them some of the skills that we like to teach. And I, I don't take a lot of credit for this. The way, the way our relationship with our customers work is we have some skills that we like to teach and, and we just collect them. You know, we, we have all these relationships. We collect best practices and then just redistribute them to the grain industry. We showed this family, these skills and they went from a business that just kind of was there existing. They were all coming into work and making a salary to a, a genuinely profitable, 
very profitable powerhouse of a grain business. And the, the amazing story was she told me one time, we used to call ADM and Cedar Rapids, big corn processor, a huge multinational company. And I would tell them, okay, we need to sell you a truckload of corn. And they would have to ask me how to spell my name. There's just no idea who I, I'm just a, I'm just a commodity to them. And, um, she built skills to understand grain values and, and trade the basis. And I don't remember the year exactly, but it was probably sometime in 2015, let's just say to throw a number. I don't remember for sure. She called me one day and said, hey, the president of this, not ADM, but another processing company, Cedar Rapids, the president of this company called me and wanted my opinion on what he's going to have to pay for corn this summer because I've sold him corn for all these years and Every, you know, I'm, I'm asking him for a value that's above what he's paying right now. And then he sees that I'm right. Like, guys, you're paying even. And I need you to pay 10 over. And he pays me 10 over. And then he ends up paying 10 over all summer long. And he realizes that I, I know where it's going before he does. And so the dynamic has shifted now. It's still the same company, still the same six siblings. It's, but they're, they're just, they're just controlling acres. They're, they're making the processors better off. They're making the farmers better off. They're a profitable company. And now instead of talking about survival, they're talking about how do we pass this on to our kids? You know, there's just, uh, we've just taken money from the market and brought it into this little town of Edgewood, Iowa. It's, it's, this couldn't be more fun. And, and besides all that, she's a great person. You know, she, she's got, she's a a mother, obviously and a grandmother. She's, she uh, teaches, um, Faith formation, I think it's called at the Catholic Church on Wednesday nights. She, her her daughter was kind of a stud softball player, and she traveled all around. She came down to Florida a couple times for these softball tournaments, and it's just because of my level of social skills, which is not high. I, I, <laughs> tend, to, I tend to. It's a fact. Uh, you know, you you say, okay, this is Meryl, and she works at this business. That that's what she does. But you find out, of course, that's not true. Maryland's this whole person, you know, she's just not this lady that runs this grain business. She's this whole person with a lot of interesting stories. And, uh, and there's a million of those. There's just, well, there's at least a few hundred people that I know that have a lot of cool things that people need to know about them. Yeah. One of the best adages I heard long time ago when I was a kid, I'm not sure if my dad told me, but I just remember very vividly. If you're ever in a boring conversation, chances are you're the boring one. Right. Like it's it's that you haven't figured out how to ask this person a question that gets them to open up, because just by living on this earth, you are experiencing things. And if you meet somebody that has built anything that has uh, been a part of a family business for any length of time, like they all have something to say. Right. And and that goes, it's, you know, it's easy to strike up a conversation with an Uber driver because, you know, they do that conversation. How'd you get into this a thousand times? But when you can start doing it with the person that's selling you shoes and the, you know, the anybody, that's when you realize like every single person here has a story. They're making money for, to provide for somebody or something. It's always interesting. It, it's yes. It took me a long time to figure that out. Or at least I don't believe that at all. You like ever since I met you, you've always been, you speak. I mean, you're talking today way, 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 way more than you ever would. If you and I were talking on the phone or you and I were doing whatever, like this is, yeah. this is unnatural, Phil. Yes, it is. That's <laughs> true. I'm getting better at it. What, what I, uh, I've had a couple of friends. I think you're one of them. Uh, there's, there's a friend of mine, Vince Giordano, that's, that's been, uh, in sales for a long time. And I met him through jujitsu, which is how I meet a lot of interesting people. We've got people on our team at white commercial that are 
that they're just very interested in people. And I, I'm not uninterested in people, but I, I just have, you know, some self-confidence issues and other things that I'm just not, I'm just not the person I'd rather put in my headphones and sit over there than, than strike up a conversation with a stranger. But by watching people who are good at that and who are genuinely interested, Oh, there's a person I don't know. I want to go learn a lot about that person. Uh, that's, that's been formative for me. I, I don't think it'll ever be my best skill, but it's, it's, it looks so rewarding from the outside <laughs> looking in the, the benefit of the, the podcast that I'm doing is these are people that I've worked with for a long time, 20 plus years in some cases. And so I, I've just had the chance naturally to talk to them so long that you just learn things. And, and uh, so from a selfish standpoint, I'm hoping this podcast helps me learn how to do that better. But also I just think people need to hear these stories. There's just, there's just a lot of really cool people in the world that are working in a small business in a small town and, and maybe no one will hear these stories if I don't help them get out there. So selfishly, I'm glad you have it out there because I find so a fair amount of young people will come to me and say like, Hey, I'm thinking about going to work at this large corporation or this ag thing. Like I've gotten involved in FFA in some unusual ways. So I get like a few phone calls or somebody will be like, Hey, will you talk with my son or my daughter? And my answer to them is like, unless you have like a clear vision of exactly what it is that you want to do, which is likely wrong. But like, (laughs) if you know where you want to go, like I'll help you go get into that corporation. But chances are that the reason you're going there is because it's the only light you can see, right? You're just, you don't, it's, it's the only thing you can walk towards. But I always say like, Hey, you know what you really should do is talk to these guys at white commercial. Like they have this program and they'll, they'll teach you how to do this basis trading. And not only that, if you don't like doing exactly what they're doing, they know a huge percentage of the really cool grain operators all around the country. And like, this is the intersection between farming and business, right? Like that's exactly where that, that transition takes place. And I've always said that uh, ever since I worked in a corporation, right? If you want to be in a place where you can make a difference, get to where as close you can to where money's coming in the door. And that to me is, is the grain, grain elevators. So for me, you having a podcast means I don't have to be like, hey, call this this dude that I know. I can now be like, hey, there's a podcast. Listen to it. And if you find what they're talking about interesting, now give them a call. I'm a I'm a huge proponent of young people getting into small businesses in general. I mean, I, I'm biased toward the grain industry. It's the industry I work in. And I've never worked for a big corporation other than when I was a teenager, you know, menial jobs. But uh I've, I've worked for white commercials since I was 19 years old and 47. So I have a very limited, <laughs> very limited exposure to large corporations, but what I've seen over and over, and I would include myself on this list. If, if you can find a way to be useful in a small company, you can be in a position of real responsibility, you know, maybe, not, maybe not the boss or that, the boss thing is kind of irrelevant, but you can be in a position of real responsibility really fast. I, I give the example when I, the first real job I had, at, I mean, I was a deckhand. I did a bunch of things, but like the first real job I had was working at this community public radio station. And it was awesome because they couldn't pay me. There were barely anybody around, but there was so much to do that they were like, Oh, will you do that? Oh, you'll, you'll accept that responsibility before you know it. I'm running pledge drive and getting to go on the air and doing all these things that if I had gone and worked at the big shiny, you know, radio station that was, you know, everybody knew about, you would still be a cog in the bottom of that wheel competing with everybody else trying to get to the top. And that's why the advice is always like, go to a place that needs you, not go to a place that can afford you, right? 
the the place that needs you will eventually figure out a way to afford you if you deliver value to them. That's it. That's and the, you can do it so quickly. You could be a year out of college and essentially just like you with the radio station, you can essentially be running a business at least in a, in a bunch of ways. You or think. you're part of it. And and like even if you're not in charge, right? All of a sudden you know what it's like to be responsible for something that like people are depending on you. And that is a thing that when you're in a corporation, nobody depends on you. You are completely replaceable until you get way, way, way up to the upper echelons. And even even then, you know, like the senior middle management, those people are all on SSRIs and and, uh, anti-anxiety medications and all kinds of things. I'm mostly familiar, of course, with grain industry, but these large grain companies, let's say mid-tier, but large by any any reasonable corporate standard, even at the C-suite level, it's not at all uncommon every four or five years that that whole thing clears out. The board just comes in and says, okay, all of the CEO, COO, CFO, see everything. It's gone. We got to put a whole new team in here. And a whole bunch of, I don't, I don't know if that's bad or good. I get, I'm heavily biased towards small business. It's what I know, but that doesn't happen. Typically in a small business, you're going to have the same leadership forever along the lines of leadership. And I think you're, you're, you said this, I just want to underscore it. I don't, the desire to be the boss is not a useful desire. The desire for responsibility is incredibly useful. And a lot of times it ends up with you being the, the boss, so to speak with, but that's not, that's not a good driver. The driver to have responsibility is really, really useful and, and puts you in a position where you're making real decisions that have real impact. And you probably do end up in leadership of some kind, but I sort of feel like if you, if you really want leadership real bad in the, in the sense of being the, you know, the top of the pole you probably shouldn't have it. It's not really understanding what leadership is about, right? Like, because you can pay people to do work, right? And they'll do whatever the work is. And then you get like a series of check boxes. But a leader figures out like, how can I put this person in a position where they want to do the work, where they are like excited about the thing that is going on there and certainly like motivate them through the points when things kind of suck or getting things done that don't don't need to be done or that, that need to be done, but nobody wants to do the leader is the one that inspires people to to do that. And if you can't do that and you're only dictatorial. Yeah, and leadership happens, can happen from anywhere in an organizational chart. Being a leader and being the boss are not synonymous with each other. You, you can absolutely be a leader on the bottom of whatever the, whatever the totem pole is for your business. Because it's all the things you said, you don't have to be in charge. You don't have to have a title to do them. Motivate people, help people figure out where they should be, take responsibility. That's how you do it. This, I'm nervous about people who want to be the boss. I just don't think that's, maybe it works out, maybe it doesn't, but that's not a useful driver. The leadership is, is, is incredibly useful in a small company. If you have, if you're interested in taking responsibility for things, being a leader in the sense of leading that has nothing to do with, with where you are, uh, you can, you'll end up being the boss because that's just how, that's just how small businesses work. If you're, if you have a lot, if you have high utility, you just keep you just keep taking on responsibility, and and then eventually you're you are the, the leader both in title and in and in you know and in this like some of it becomes kind of a cliche right when you think about it because people that have been in the world they know what we're talking about but I heard something the other day that like really kind of clicked in my mind it was Peter Thiel talking about I am suspect when a young person comes and tells me they want to be an entrepreneur because that's actually the code word for like I want to be rich. When when the real when the reality is you you may want one of two things you either 
want to not you you want to be in control of your own destiny you want to be like you know steering your own ship or two people that start businesses do it because they've found some problem that they can uniquely solve or that the market hasn't solved and so people that are just like somebody saying i want to be the boss somebody saying i want to be an entrepreneur it's it's such a one-dimensional view of how things work and like that got me because that like stung a little bit because like for a long time I did think like that right where I was starting a business and I didn't know and ultimately I found a problem to solve right I, I found these legacy interviews and it like really was a place for me to do it but like I was very much in the camp of I just don't want to have a boss so what what do I have to do to not have a boss well that that's not a that's not a horrible motive because it, it does it does mean you're taking responsibility for something I I want to be an entrepreneur is kind of a strange thing to say because you either are or aren't one, I guess. <laughs> Wanting to be one is either going to be one or not, I suppose. But uh, I, I like the idea. I think it's because I've been surrounded by a lot of independent business owners who either started a business or even inherited it either way. But uh, I like the idea of of wanting to be, well, responsibility. That's what it is. I, I want to be responsible for my destiny. That's the, that's a beautiful thing. And you, there's a lot of ways to do it. You can absolutely do that working for someone else. I think I did. Uh, you can absolutely do it by your, it's, you can absolutely do it by starting something. And uh, most entrepreneurs that I know of, or most people, let's just don't use that word. Most people who've started businesses seem like they do exactly what you're talking about. I'm just going to start doing stuff. And probably five or 10 years from now, what I'm doing looks nothing like what I started doing because I realized that whatever that was, wasn't the problem. I found some new problem and now, now I'm doing, I don't know if you listened to the, how I built this podcast. I have. Yeah. There's a lot of those stories are like that. I started doing this and then it turned into this completely other thing. I, I think if, if I remember right, I may have this wrong, but I feel like the, I feel like it was the guy who started five guys, but I, I might be wrong. Anyway, this guy was selling t-shirts door to door in college and then ended up starting one of these famous companies. He thought he was a t-shirt salesman. And along those lines, as he was just going through life, selling t-shirts door to door in a college dorm, he figured out, Oh, here's this somehow stumbled on this other problem. I don't think it was five guys. Well, so I'll tell you, like we had this revelation just very recently in our, in our business. Like we're doing these legacy interviews. People want a recording of their families, but for some reason I had ignored the feedback that people had been giving me over and over and over again. I don't know why people would be like, uh, you know, we really like a transcript of this. Right. And so we were like, oh yeah, well we would, but that's really complicated. It's kind of expensive. And, da, da, da. and then somebody called us up and was like, no, really like give me a price. I will pay whatever it takes. And then we, we did it. And all of a sudden we were like, wait a second. Number one, that wasn't that hard. And number two, when we told other people about it, they were all like, yeah, oh my gosh, can you get me a transcript of my thing? And we realized we were not in the business of making a video. A video is the only, like, the, the side of it, right? You get that and you want to watch it. But people want to have that physical thing. And for whatever reason, we've been doing this business for a year and a half, two years now. Like, it just never dawned on us that actually what we're selling is a book, not a video. Yeah. I think that I've seen that work in our industry uh, both ways. You know, you start, I'm going to buy grain. Okay, I have to differentiate. So I'm gonna I'm gonna buy grain and turn it into tortilla chips, or not buy a certain quality of grain. So we've seen it go more and more specialized, or just doing something slightly different, or very very different than I thought. We've also seen it go the other way. Is I'm gonna all I'm gonna do is buy and sell grain, but I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna figure out exactly what I have to do to make this work, and I'm only gonna do that. This kind of goes back to your point about giving away services and you know kind of getting too far into the weeds of I'm gonna do everything everybody wants. 
I'm going to identify only the things that work and I'm going to figure out a way to only do those things. And it, people look at you like you're insane when you do that, but I know people who've, who've done it. You're over here with this giant shiny grain facility and you're paying 30 cents less than everybody else in the neighborhood and you're still filling up. How is that? Well, I just, I just figured out, I only want to work with people who understand my value. So I'm not going to, if you think I'm not bringing my grain to you, you pay 30 cents less. That's crazy. Oh, fine. Go somewhere else. I'm, I'm only going to figure out exactly what works and I'm only going to do the stuff that works, which is just a, instead of veering off, it's just narrowing in. Like my plan was right all along, but I'm going to get narrower and narrower and narrower on exactly how that business model can work. And I'm going to refuse to do anything that's outside the scope of what makes it work. And it's just such a tight line. And and when you do it, you have to decide I'm going all the way, right? Like you, you, you can't, you can't get halfway into the stream and then you have to have unshakable belief that what you're doing is useful and right. So that actually makes me think of parenting and you are in a unique position because you're one of the only friends that's around my age that already has a child that's like up and up and out the door, right? There's to be 22 at the end of this month. So I was really enjoying being a dad, really embracing it. And then I had a friend mention to me one time about how sad he was that he missed the childhood, right? And so this started a sort of paranoia in me. I spend a lot of time with my daughters. I, I, I give up a lot. It's really, I do my business and I'm with my family and that's about it. But I don't want to do it because I'm paranoid, but I have become paranoid that I'm going to like look back on the two-year-old time or the five-month-old time and just long for that to be back. You've been there. Do you, do you miss it? Do you, do you wish it was back? That's a big question. I, I don't know any parents who don't wish that on some level. Uh, but I, <laughs> parenting is not for sissies in a whole bunch of ways. <clears throat> I've told my daughter many times on, on one level, parenting is just exchanging one terror for another over the course of time. You know, when you're an infant, I'm terrified that you're going to smother in your sleep or fall off of whatever, you know, whatever. I'm there the things, right now. <laughs> you know, and then, and then, you, then, then you're a, you know, then you're a preteen and I'm terrified about, or the kids at school will be nice to you or what, I mean, just anything. Now you're off at college, you know, you're, you're a young lady driving around in a big town by yourself. And I'm worried about all, so always just terrified of things. But I realized pretty early on that I can't be motivated by that. So I, I'm going to, I'm going to enjoy what's happening now the most I can. So that, that's, that's the terror about her safety and all that stuff. But yes, to answer your question, uh, are there days that I wish that she was two years old again, or I could go back somehow. Oh, yes, of course. It's great. It's, it's really good. I mean, up, up until, I don't know, maybe eight or nine, you're the, you're the best thing in the world. You know, you are the center of the universe. You, you and your wife, the center of the universe, you're the absolute, your kids don't want anything more than you. Yeah, that's true. You come home and I, you experience like your children when you come home. And they want to run into your arms. There will ne- There is no one else on the planet that wants to see me that bad. No. So that's, it's hard not to miss that when it's gone because it does, it does go away. My daughter and I have an excellent relationship. She has an excellent relationship with her mom and it changed. It has to change. You know, it does. It has to change. Uh, but what I, what I decided pretty early on in her life was whatever is happening right now, is the thing I'm going to enjoy the best I can and do the best job I can. And I did the same as you. I, there were, 
there were lines I wouldn't cross. You know, there there white commercial things are happening, and if she has a play at school, I'm I'm not going to be where that. I'm going to be here at this play. I'm going to get someone else. See if I can find someone else to do that thing. I went. I've been over backwards to not miss anything. Actually, interestingly enough, uh, she's an only child, and as she's grown up, I don't resentment's too strong of a word, but she got to a point where she said, "Okay." You guys, you've been so supportive for so you've been at everything. You've been right there with me all the time. Just, just back up a little bit, you know? And, uh, that's, I would have liked to have heard something else, but, but I understood it. It's, it's the right thing. Uh, that's good. I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, I do these legacy interviews and I hear people describe like, you know, I'll ask the question, um, what do you hope your children remember about their childhood? And everyone says, I want them to be happy. But you also hear about how the parent reflected back that they love their children. And almost everyone says, and we went to every soccer game. And then we realized maybe that might have been a bit much, right? Like, not not all of them. Everybody has different experience. But oh, we, we did it. College is when we figured out. She's, she's not one to rock the boat. But college is, you know, we moved her into college and we went up there and my mom was with us and my wife's mom was, you know, it was this whole, like this whole crowd of people helping her move in. And you see her looking around at some of the other kids that are maybe with one parent or maybe by themselves. And, you know, we wanted to do it again, sophomore year. Let's go, let's go. Let's take that. She's like, ah, let's, let's don't, how about we don't do that? Uh, I'm off track here now on your original question. Well, this is but, exactly right. Like, I mean, so I grew up as the middle child of seven. So like my parents, Drop my stuff off Different on stuff, the lawn yeah. of college campus. And they were like, you know, be good, Vance. And as they left, I lit up my first college cigarette and was so excited. And like, like, yeah. like independence was me, me, me. But I don't know, you know, I, I don't know what the right balance is. But my, my friend instilled a sort of paranoia that I don't want to live by, right? Like I, I, you know, my daughter took my face in her hands today and said, I want a hippopotamus for Christmas, right? And you're like, that's the cutest thing in the entire world. I want to embrace that, but I don't want to embrace it because I'm afraid it won't be there. Don't do that. Yeah, my, yeah that's that's my exact advice to you is enjoy that. And don't think time is going to go. It's going to go real fast. And there's nothing you can do about that. And you, it doesn't wish, feel real fast at 3 a.m. when you're changing diapers. Here's here's the deal. I know you know this. Everybody does, but you'll you'll find out even more so. Any individual day can go on forever, but the years, man, the years, they go so fast. It is absolutely unbelievable how fast they. And, and the older you get, the faster they go. And the older your children get, the faster they go. It is crazy. Still, even now, I'm the father of an adult. Any individual day can go on forever. But the years are just, I mean, she's going to graduate from college in May. We just moved her in with my mom and my mother. I'm just, yeah, you know, I think I remember when you were doing was, that. Like, it was, yeah. It's insane. So uh, you're on the right track. Don't be motivated by paranoia. Don't just enjoy every moment. And it's going to change as your kids get older. There's going to be different ways to enjoy it. It's all great. It's, I mean, I'm, I'm the father of an adult and it's great. It's different. It's not that she doesn't, you know, she doesn't take my face in her hands. She doesn't run into my arm that she loves me. We have a great relationship. It's not like it was when she was two and it shouldn't be. It'd be weird if it, you know, she needs to grow up, she needs to grow up, but there's so much to enjoy at every stage and you have to just, you don't have to do anything. But my suggestion is that you just enjoy every stage the most you can and all this other stuff's going to happen and it doesn't get any better by worrying about it. 
If you worry about it, it's going to happen anyway. So now you've got the paranoia and it's happening. It's <laughs> two things. You can, you can cut it to one. Yeah. Like just don't, there's, and, and it, you feel like you need to get everything perfect. That's the goal. That's, that's what I wanted. I wanted to do everything right. And I had all these ideas about how I would be as a disciplinarian and how I would be, what our relationship would be like. And, you know, what really powerful and difficult lesson for me and my wife was that especially as she gets older, she is an individual human being. She's not a project of ours. She's not, she's not doing exactly nothing wrong, but you know, you have this vision, here's my child and he's going to move through life in this way. And then you find out, Oh, that's a human being. That's like, this is not something I'm working on. You know, this is not a sculpture. This is a human being. She's got her own ideas about things. She's got her own interests. She's got her own level of confidence in this and that. She's got skills that we didn't know about. She doesn't like things that we thought she would like. And uh, that's great. It's hard in some ways because you have expectations and, and unmet expectations are challenging. Again, not in a bad way. She's not failing in anything. She's just her own person. And that that really happens pretty, this happens earlier than you think. You know, when, when, you're, when your kids are 10 years old, they're going to start turning into a person and they're going to be their own, they're going to be their own people. And there's nothing you can do about that. <laughs> and it's not bad. There, there'll be things that you, oh man, that's, that's, I was hoping that she'd be this kind of person. Well, she's this other kind of person. Well, that's, that's, well, well and that's you see what happens to people when they don't individuate from their parents, oh, right? Yeah. Like that, that's, that's a far worse prison that you end up living in because yes, that child is still reflecting to you. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to be? But there's no chance of them being satisfied with life. If the, if what is required is your approval, but like it's that, that's, that's gotta be really, you know, nobody's I, satisfied with that. No, the parent or the child, no one, no one gets to be happy in that environment. I grew up in a family where my dad, um, didn't tell you at all. I mean, you knew like he had certain expectations, but like literally, you know, you'd be like, Hey, I think I'm going to go become a mechanic or I'm going to go become a person that works at a shoe store or something like, okay. You know? And like for a long time, I resented the fact that I couldn't get any feedback. And what I didn't realize was like, my dad was doing me a great favor in the sense that I, uh, I had to break free. I had to figure out what was going to make me happy. And I don't know what life would be like if I had had a parent that had held on to that, right? That it that it gripped onto that and and used their approval to to continue to get you to do what you want to do. Like that'd be awful. But but it was bad. It was you know it takes. I the, I tell a story sometimes about I was with my friend, uh, Court, sitting on a park bench one time when I was living out in California, and I was like. Uh, you know, I just really wish my dad would tell me what he wants me to be. And, and, uh, and if he would just tell me, then I could just go be that. But I realized like I could become president of the United States and my dad still wouldn't, wouldn't care, you know? And, and my, and my buddy was like, uh, why don't you, why don't you call him up and tell him? And I was like, I'd rather put a gun in my mouth than tell my dad that like this. And he's like, okay, well, here's my <laughs> phone and you should make that call. And it was the best phone call I ever made. Not because my dad had anything profound to say, but because he was like, no, I literally, I don't care what, what you become. And that, that was like the beginning of me individuating and becoming my own person. Finding out, uh, finding out who my daughter is, is another great unexpected joy at this stage of parenthood. It's been going, it's not just brand new now, but in, in her time through college, especially because she's got to get away from us geographically and, and, uh, 
no big surprises, but you just instant when when you're when she's at home, I'm thinking about how can I help her do the best she can do. And there's a certain amount of me putting stuff on her there. And now she's away and she's turning into who she is, or maybe she's doing it the whole time, but I could see it better now. And it's it's great fun to find out who she is because who she is, is is great. I love it. She, you know, she's somebody who has fears and overcomes them and sets goals and reaches them. And she's, she's doing things that are outside her comfort zone or I thought they were. And she's just, she's a great person. I'm glad to know her. And it, it's a, it was challenging to go to shift my focus from uh, in some, in some sense, father to friend still, I'm still her father. You know, that, that that's not going to go away, but there's this, there's this, I'm the, I'm the, standing over protecting that kind of thing to I'm, I'm stepping back and watching her uh, turn into a great person. And that's, it's all great. All of it. The two-year-old stuff is great. 10-year-old stuff is great. It's all great, man. I knew you were the right person to ask about this. This is, and I like the idea of uh, being excited to, to watch or learn or get to know this person. Like that, that's an, that is a, that's an excellent way to think of it. You do have input on that. Of course. I did what you do is going to help determine what that is. I think it was important for me to understand that I'm not, you're not forcing that, you know, you're being the best dad you can, your wife's being the best mom she can. And at some, sometime all of that, that part. And I heard a great quote. I was listening to a podcast. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was Jordan Peterson on the Lex Friedman podcast. And I'm going to, I'm going to butcher this quote, but he was quoting a philosopher, an ancient philosopher. And I just don't remember who it was. Uh, it doesn't matter that much, but, he said, uh, the, the greatest expression of motherhood is failing at motherhood, something like that. And what he meant was as a mother, especially you're, you want to protect, you know, you want to keep all the harm away. You want to, you want to just keep anything bad from happening that can happen, but eventually you have to stop doing, you know, that's you, you stop doing that and you say, okay, you have to you have to be exposed to the possibility of bad things so that you can grow up and you know that doesn't happen at two obviously there's a lot of protection going on at two but it was that quote was about mothers but it it did sunk it hit me hard that I had a guest on the podcast that uh, pointed out that the story of the Garden of Eden is actually a metaphor for childhood where that had never crossed my mind where he's like of course right it's You've got your children. They don't understand good and evil. They don't know anything about that. You get to name all the animals. You're learning about the world. But then one day, you have to take that bite of the apple that then exposes you to, oh, not everything is good. Not everything is perfect. And then you have to leave the garden and you can't come back to the garden of childhood. And like that really helped me because what that did was orient me around like right now, my time is tending the Garden of Eden. But the the whole point of tending the garden is to prepare her to leave the garden because to not leave the garden would mean either she died early or you didn't prepare her and she child. won't leave. Yeah. yeah, don't want that. Anyway, don't worry. All that future stuff's going to happen. So just <laughs> and the nostalgia is going to happen. Just just live right now. That's the way to do it. Just get the most you can out of right now, and all that other stuff's going to happen whether you worry about it or not. So don't worry about it. Well, my man, Phil, this was great. I, uh, I'm so glad you uh, told me you were coming in town for the conference. And then we're like, yeah, I'll do a podcast. So if people wanted to hear your podcast, what is, what's it called and where do they find it? Yeah, it's called the Sample Bucket Podcast. And, and it's a grain business uh, reference. The Sample Bucket is 
every time a every time a truck comes across the scales, you stick a probe down in it and pull out a sample of the grain and test it for more all the stuff you talked about, and then you you just dump it in a five gallon bucket, and that's it. Just has all the all the stuff that was in that grain. So that was my idea. Is we're gonna pull all these things out of these people. So it's called the Sample Bucket Podcast. It's on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and uh, whatever the other. Those are the two big ones. But it, it's it's wherever you can search Sample Bucket Podcast on podcast. Uh, hosts and you'll find it and not to open up too much of a thread but you guys do have a really cool training program for for young people through like white commercial and your foundation yeah it, it's a it's a separate thing really uh don white was our founder and he when he died he put a lot of money into this foundation that's called the agricultural scholarship center for basis training education and it, it's its own it's not a white commercial thing we're very closely tied to it i'm on the board of it and everything uh, but it, it has a program that we give scholarships away for people who are studying agriculture, just normal college scholarships. But we also have this merchandising skill building program, which is it's open to college students or people already in the industry or people that think they might want to be in the industry. And it's a six month program that involves some online training, some in-person training, some visits to grain facilities. Uh, it's just really a, a, an extensive, long-term hands-on course that is fully funded the travels paid for and everything by the foundation and it's it's led by a man who used to work for white commercial and has worked for a bunch of grain companies he's a phenomenal teacher and understands a lot about the business and he brings in other people from the industry to teach it It, it's just a it's just a practical introduction to the grain business to me it's like a great way to get away from the the light of the large corporations and have a new place but the other thing it is is you could come in with having very little understanding of agriculture at all. And it's a way to deal new people into the industry, people that have not been a part of farming. So I, I really applaud you guys uh, for being a part of that. And for Don White, who clearly had an impact on uh, people like you and I meeting because, because without him, our lives would be very different. Don White said, uh, he said a lot of things. He was a formative figure in my a huge, huge figure in my life. Uh, but the thing he said to me many times was if you, help enough other people get what they want, they'll get what you want. And that's a pretty good way to approach business and life and everything. Ah, ah, ah.